0: Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to No Meat Athlete Radio. Hey
1: everybody, this is Matt Frazier with Doug Hay, and we are about to produce episode 19 of the No Meat Athlete radio podcast and our first one since the book tour has wrapped up and i shouldn't say it has completely wrapped up i am home now and it feels like it's wrapped up but i do have two more events left um those are december 4th and 5th in raleigh and charlotte north carolina respectively so if you are in that area then i hope you will check it out um we'll put links in the show notes assuming this podcast comes up before those dates we'll put links to those events my facebook event pages for them But uh, they should be good, and uh, I'm definitely happy to be home. I really, really enjoyed it, and uh, Doug, who was with me today, he came out, flew out to Arizona, Phoenix, where we hung out with Susan Lakey and Matt Russigno, who was also with us. So that was kind of everyone who was involved um, on a day-to-day level with No Meat Athlete all in one place. So It was fun, and uh, I had a good time. That was one of my favorite parts of the tour. Doug, did you enjoy that or was it just a chore at work
0: <laughs> no it was great i i really enjoyed um spending time with the team kind of getting to know <laughs> susan a bit better and, and i had never met matt before so that was that was fun uh and yeah no and it was it was such a pleasure to be a part of all of the events that i attended and meet uh readers and and really yeah. had a good time it was a lot of fun
1: it was fun and you got you got to see a lot you got to see the the long drive side of it because we did <laughs> we did have a uh, well, I guess you were there, you flew into Phoenix, so you were there for Great. the Phoenix event, then right. Scottsdale the next night, Tucson, Tucson, Tucson the little TV thing in the morning, and then, uh, for those who did not see the Facebook because I was on a little um, a morning show thing that they did there, um, so we did that in the morning, and then in Tucson went, and did we have an event there that night? No. We, uh, yes. well, you, oh, oh, the afternoon, you, we had yeah. like a meet and greet. Yep. Um, at, with the Healthy You Network, they're, uh, at their little facility. So that was good. And then we had some luxurious accommodations. We actually, not, not <laughs> facetiously, we actually did have luxurious accommodations that night because of Matt Rosigno's friend's parents. And, uh, then we drove a long way to, from, from Tucson to Austin. I think it was, I don't know. Was it was it twelve hours total? Yeah, I
0: think I think it probably took about thirteen hours total. Yeah, because so, we spent we spent a while in in El Paso. Had some good Mexican food and
1: yeah, we had a lot of Mexican food that whole stint. In the we did, place. yeah, yeah. So anyway, you got to see that part of it, which was not the most fun, but it wasn't bad. And Matt was with us then too. Matt Risigno, the co-author of the book, mm-hmm. and uh, then an event in Austin, which was cool, and then then you at headed that, out
0: at Bearded Brothers. At Bearded is... Brothers. Which is a neat uh I had never never actually had one of their bars before.
1: Um, no, and they, they were, were delicious,
0: good. yeah, they are really
1: good. yeah, they gave like a box of them. We traded a book or something for a box or a half box or something, but I ended up drinking I mean eating those things for um, a lot of my breakfast for the for the rest of the tour, so it was good that I had them and uh yeah that was a that was a good event. I enjoyed it and the next day this was after you left we did um actually the next day was Houston. Not that everyone needs to hear all these dates and events because there's a schedule on the blog, but um, and then after that we went went back to Austin for an event at Whole Foods, their headquarters, with Rip Esselstyn, which was really fun. He invited us to do that and like hosted it and introduced us, and then we had lunch with him. Ended up playing poker with him later, which was also fun.
0: (laughs) Did you do that uh, at one of the casinos or?
1: No, we went. It was just a game, just his friends over his friend's house, and he and like five other guys, and a couple of them worked with him. Uh, at at engine 2 and just uh-huh. it was just fun it was it was a cool little perk of the trip that i did not expect at all you you didn't embarrass us did you no i mean they were happy to take our money they they didn't mind <laughs> doing that at all so I, it wasn't embarrassing at all <laughs>
0: good
1: <laughs> um but yes and and they did take our money they did but that's okay it was worth it it was fun <clears throat> so anyway what we're going to do with this episode is play a recording the one from the bearded brothers event actually assuming that uh, that one the quality is good i haven't heard the entire thing and there was some chance i would substitute one from uh malaprops that i did in Asheville just last week um but we'll play a, a live recording and let you know which one it is in the, in the show notes but um and then we'll just talk a little bit more about that before we wrap it up but uh anyway before we get into there Just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the tour in general. And I am planning to write a blog post. The blog post will be up by the time before this podcast goes live because this will probably be the week after Thanksgiving when this podcast goes up. And right now is two days before Thanksgiving. I'm going to hope to put that post up tomorrow. That will be just like the tour recap with a bunch of pictures and just kind of some different links to things and lessons I learned and all that that kind of good stuff. But – this will be the audio version of that, and it will be a much briefer version, I think, than that post will be. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I I got – everyone asked how the tour went, and the answer every single time was that it was an amazing experience. Every event was wonderful. The the driving and – even the driving wasn't bad. Like, seeing the country was awesome. It was so many cities in such a short time. It was do an event, then hop in the car either that night or the next morning and go on to the next city do another event. Very rarely was there a day off. And when there was, it was uh, a driving day or a bunch together. So I bunched like three out of, in Seattle, I had, I had uh, two off days kind of near each other. And then in San Diego, I did the same thing because my family was flying to those places. So I got to hang out with them. But other than that, the off days were few and far between. And so it was really, really fun and really, really hectic at the same time. Um, I didn't I wasn't able to do any of the work that I thought I would be able to do or very, very little of it, which is why there was, you know, a po- less than a post a week for sure, including for the podcast that I published that Sid Garza Hillman and I did. Um, so it was, you know, in that respect, it was stressful. I feel like I, felt like I was getting behind with stuff while it was like I was working so hard and putting so much time and energy into this. And at the same time, from just a general onlooker who wasn't happening to attend an event. It, it would look like no meat athlete had paused for a few weeks or a month and a half from my perspective, at least it seemed like that. So it was frustrating in that respect, but really, really fun an amazing experience and met a ton of good people too. A lot of, a lot of really great people that I got to connect with that I, some that I had hoped to connect with and some that, that I hadn't even planned on meeting or talking to at all.
0: Did you, uh? is there a reader, one or two readers in particular that, that stand out as being kind of, really inspiring stories for you, people you were glad you met?
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing that I noticed this pretty quickly in the tour was that anybody who, or for the most part, people who had amazing stories had gotten in touch with me about them, like people who had lost 70 or 100 pounds or, or just totally transformed their lifestyle. They had gotten in touch with me just, I guess, because they were very proud and happy and... Um, mm-hmm. So you know wanted to share that. those people, like almost without fail, managed to make it to the events, which kind of makes sense. like if somebody is that into the whole lifestyle and it's that meaningful to them, whatever role my blog played in that, like is great. and if they you know if if they had a strong association with the blog then then they made it out to the event. So it was really cool to meet all the people who who I had connected with over four years of doing this, who had amazing stories. Um, it was neat to see them in person and finally meet them. So right. um, Wendy Fry was there. She was uh, in Philadelphia. She's the one who she had to post uh, Wendy's. I don't know what it was, but chicken something about chicken fried steak. And she used to live in the South, and she um, mm-hmm. you know had had been told by people she she like got this idea that she would run a marathon, and she thought she had done like some jump rope. Uh, I don't know what they're even called, but but like fundraiser type things where you jump for a certain amount of hours and. She went from that thinking that that she really wanted to do a marathon. And like somehow the doctor kind of discouraged her and she expected to get this great, you know, people to be like, yes, that's awesome, go do that marathon. And she said it was the opposite reaction. People thought like, you know, they laughed and said, you know, who are you to do that? And why do you think you can do that? And it's dangerous. And for someone like you who's not yet healthy, it's not a good goal. I mean, all that stuff. But but of course she, she still ended up, doing it after some ups and downs and waiting so even though like she didn't lose some staggering amount of weight you i mean you can definitely tell a difference in her before and after pictures and she went <laughs> to a plant-based diet in the process too um I, you know that one to me personally is inspiring just because that resonates with me that it just kind of gets me excited like you know as, as i referenced in the talk the watching the rocky and rudy movies and you see the person who like everyone says they can't do it and then they still go out and do it and they're going to do it no matter what like that that stuff really gets me. So Wendy's story did that for me, and it was so neat to, to hang out with her and go for a run with her. We'd actually met in Asheville um, a couple months ago when she was here, went out to brunch at Plant, my favorite restaurant in Asheville. Um, so many more than that, though. I mean, there, there were so many other stories. I, it's hard for me to say that there was one that, that or even a few that, that were just, like, amazing. I mean, I heard so many stories of people who had lost... 30 or 50 pounds, and people whose asthma went away, and back pain went away, and knee pain went away, and skin stuff went away, and headaches, all this stuff cleared up when they started eating plant-based, and I don't really know if that's because they gave up the meat and dairy. Again, another thing, as I mentioned in my talk, is is it because those foods cause that, and when you get rid of them, all the stuff gets fixed, or is it that plants are so amazingly good and... Those other foods, which are generally high in calories, meat, dairy eggs, that they crowd out the plants and don't allow you to right. take in a whole lot of, of plants that have so many valuable things in them that might reduce inflammation, um, help you recover in sports, which is the, the context that I talk about it in. Right. So you know I don't, I don't know which of those things it is, and I suspect it's probably a combination of both. and I think that's probably why you see people on a paleo diet who experience a lot of success, at least in the short term. Um, sure. partly it's it's moving from a a bad Western diet full of processed foods to one that that has whole foods as as the base of it. whether that's plant-based or not, I tend to think plant-based is going to be the better alternative, but that you know I could admit that maybe that's because I'm biased because that's what I do and that's, that's <laughs> the one that I know so um, and I mean ethically, of course there's there's a huge difference and, and that's why I like the plant. that's actually why I initially chose it was was the ethical difference. Sure, so anyway, that's a very, very long answer to that, but, um, yeah, just so many people. I met so many people with stories like that, and as I mentioned, a lot of them said that that my blog had a lot to do with it, which I thought was amazing and and you know that's like some of the most meaningful moments for me were were just doing the book signings and being in line and then having people come up and saying, thank you. this was so amazing that that I found this during my journey, but you know, the vast majority of them it wasn't like. It wasn't like your site did this for me. It was just this whole diet did this for me. And I found your site when I was searching for more information about it. And, right. uh, you know, it played an eight part, sometimes small, sometimes big. So, it, you know, it was just so cool to see that all these people who had experienced all this change. And not just weight loss, not just health stuff, but accomplishing really neat goals like marathons and Ironmans and all that. Very cool. <laughs> it was.
0: How about how – about, uh... You know one thing I noticed I was a little bit surprised about it, is at none of the events there didn't no one was uh, challenging you or heckling you at all. Did, were you no. surprised by that?
1: I was yeah, I fully expected that and I still do have two events left, so uh, and they are in they' in the south, technically speaking, so it, it's possible. but uh yeah I expected that that the paleo thing that I would that I would get some some people who were who were big into the paleo diet and would would come and sort of challenge me on that right um maybe maybe those people generally don't just come out to an event like mine, like maybe it just doesn't interest them at all um and I also expected there to be a lot of people challenge like like you know hardcore raw vegans saying, why don't you know why do you have oil in your recipes um why do you destroy your food by cooking it like you know you get some of that you know, online so right. I just kind of expected that to happen, and and I had answers ready because I, not that I had to like make them up or anything, because I it's it's very like the reason I have that stuff in there, as much as I I do kind of now agree that that a diet free of oils is better than one that has oils in it, assuming you are getting enough calories, and and I think for the most part that's not the problem. The problem is the opposite, um, you know so but I but I didn't want to put that in the book because, a I don't eat an oil free diet it's just like I'm, I really like cooking and I've and I'm certainly moving in that direction of reducing the oil that I eat but I wanted the book to have stuff in it that people could pick up and say like this this is an easy thing to do I could do this um, approachable yeah. yeah yeah like someone who wasn't vegetarian or vegan I didn't want I didn't want it the issue to be that there was no oil in the recipes like this how am I gonna do that too I just right. wanted it to be like okay so here's a first step to to getting rid of the meat and the animal products in my diet um, and similar with raw food like I think raw food is fantastic. And I eat a higher proportion of of raw food, like a lot of my meals are just nowadays just a huge salad with a a raw nut based dressing on them,
0: mm-hmm. so
1: like that that's a lot of my meals nowadays. My lunches especially are that sometimes I'll add in beans on top of it, like chickpeas but so so if raw vegetables make up fifty percent of my diet or fifty percent of my vegetable consumption, that's way more than than if you look in the book. fifty percent of those recipes aren't raw. Um, sure. Because that wasn't what I was, you know, the book I wanted to be the gateway. Anyway, I'm acting as if someone has challenged me on this and no one <laughs> did. Um, so that was, that was a surprise. I fully expected that, that there would be people there who were wondering that, angry about that. And I also expected maybe something like that from the ethical vegan crowd because although I always make it clear or try to that that the ethical ideological thing is a big part of the motivation for me. That was the initial motivation for me was was that one. And uh, I kind of wondered if there, if there would be people who who would kind of get on me for for, the way that I spread the message, like doing it in this really low-key manner and saying, it's okay if you don't go all the way right now. I don't think that's the best way to create a change, in fact. So I would say if you're going to do it, I would say try to adopt the diet over a period of weeks or months rather than do it immediately. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, maybe that didn't come up so much in the talk so that People weren't there to challenge it, but I expected that people would would kind of take offense to that and say, "No, you need to go vegan now and immediately – you know, fully and now." But that didn't happen, so um, that's good. If it does, though, I, I'm not, you know, it's not it's not like I'm dreading having to defend that that's because um, I think the results and the people I've reached that that kind of speaks for itself. So um, I don't know, but well, but that was surprising. Well, I'm glad I just gave you
0: an opportunity to use your your responses. Yeah, too, I got to so. defend it. <laughs> And then all right so one more one more question uh is there a moment that sticks out as being kind of uh the coolest moment of the trip
1: That's a great question. I I I mean people have asked what cities I really liked and even that is tough for me to say. Ann Arbor was Ann Arbor Michigan I really liked which was kind of interesting. Um but then hmm. then the West Coast was just really cool. And that was expected. That Seattle, Portland, San Francisco L.A., San Diego, that that would be really cool, and it was. Um, man, I don't know, you know, I had I had a few of them. Like when I did the San Francisco event, the one at Samovar Tea Lounge with Leo Babalta from Zen Habits and Jesse Jacobs from Samovar, the founder of Samovar Tea mm-hmm. in San Francisco. When I did that one, it was like we were up on this stage, and everyone had the uh, the mics on, like pinned to our whatever attached to our collars and there was a big light cause they were recording it. And there was like a, you know, big studio type light. When right. I was actually doing that, um, that was like them. It was like, wow, I've watched this scene so many times on the internet cause I'm a big fan of Leo. So I watch his stuff and a lot of the stuff happens to be filmed at Samovar and they'll do these things. Like I think Tim Ferriss did one and some other people and they'll just, they'll do these cool little events so, like, to actually be there in this spot where I had watched all these people that I really admire doing stuff and presenting stuff and thinking, wow, it would be so cool to be there right now watching this. It was just neat to, to actually be up there doing this. So that was a special one. Got yeah. to hang out with Leo the next day, and we walked around San Francisco a little bit and went to lunch at uh, Gracias Madre, which was fantastic. That was kind of a cool – I don't know. That, that whole – San Francisco was just a fun – I, I love the city, and, and the whole event thing was cool. I got to have dinner the night before that at Millennium – restaurant which is which is a really famous vegan restaurant and went there with the owners it was very very nice to them Ann and Larry and they invited me to go with them so it was like for a little while it was just kind of like I was doing really cool things and uh, I don't know it just it just felt special at that moment for sure
0: yeah yeah that's awesome
1: but there were other highlights I mean seeing the family my, my, I don't know if I ever made this clear but my wife and kids flew out from Asheville to uh, Seattle, and we spent four days there. I think I had two events during those four days, and then they flew down to San Diego, to hang out with my wife's brother, while I drove down, went through you know Portland, San Francisco, L.A., and uh, and then I spent four days there. So that, it was great. That was another fun part was just seeing them out there and having them come to the events. That was cool for sure. As far as like driving and and seeing stuff, um, the Northern California was so beautiful. I, I didn't even know it was going to be like that. But but the drive from Portland down to Mendocino, and then especially, you know, even on to San, San Francisco through the wine country, um, but, but particularly from Portland and really the south border of Oregon down uh-huh. to Mendocino where the Stanford Inn is. And that's another – it was another really cool spot and place to be, uh, the only vegan resort in the U.S. and had a great meal there, actually two great meals and met the owner's. The drive, though, there was incredible. Along the coast, first, it was, like, through this redwood and sequoia forest and, like, the the tree that you drive through. If you, I think it cost five bucks, so I didn't go do that part. <laughs> but in that forest, that was really neat. Up and down what seemed like – I don't know how high the elevation change was, but it seemed like I was going up and down mountains, and they were lined with these trees. It was just in a dense forest. And then coming out of that and being right along the coastline where right. you're kind of on these rocky cliffs, and, you know, you just see, like, these – these rock formations out in the water—it was just a really, really neat thing. And then the wine country started there. So I don't know—that was just like a very special eight-hour drive for me. That one—it just—it just felt just really nice. I was by myself for one of few times in the trip, really. I wasn't didn't drive by myself that much, um, just because people were with me at different spots. So you know that that whole area, and then of course that led right into San Francisco, just a few days or one day later. Right. So you know it was just that was that was probably the, the most fun interesting part for me
0: was that your first time to the pacific northwest
1: i'd been to portland for world domination summit three years ago the first one but was just in downtown portland for that for three days didn't really see any of the surrounding stuff like the drive into seattle itself i thought was really nice too that was through more of this forest and just it just doesn't look like east coast uh, mountains and forests do it's just an entirely different geography and and the the plant life is different it just it was just really neat and now i'm I'm thinking of other things as i say this the colorado springs was awesome (laughs) during the incline run uh which incline hike i should call it which is just like this mile long hike that is they said 45 to 60 degrees in elevation or in incline Uh i guess so and it took us 44 minutes something to get up it it was snowy so we could have been a little faster perhaps but the record apparently is 15 minutes somebody's made it up that thing but, so, I mean, that was really cool. And then a, a trail run from the top of that down, it went kind of down the backside, I guess. And, like, just an amazing trail run. It was snowy at the top, not snowy at the bottom. And, again, just, like, it was high desert, they call it. So you're in the mountains, but there's – the wild the plant life looks like desert-type plants. It, you know, so it just – I don't know. Really, really different, and just kind of felt like another world. It was, it was a lot of fun. That was with Dave, the husband of JL from JL Goes Vegan. JL Fields. Um, they, they were extreme, overly friendly, and and treated me to too many things when I was in Colorado Springs. I feel like I need to repay them somehow. But you know, they they were incredible hosts in in the area. So um, cool. thank you to both of them for for doing that and for the run and everything. So anyway, um, I'm, I feel like I'm rambling because I haven't yet really organized all the thoughts for this blog post I'm going to write about this. I'm just kind of remembering the, the fun parts. But anyway, I would say we have rambled enough, Doug, and we should um, – any more questions on your end? Um, no, no. I think it? that was great. Okay. Then let's put on the recording now. I think it will run about 30 minutes or so, and uh, then we'll pick it up at the end of that and just say a few more things, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. Perfect. All right. All right, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Uh, Matt Visigno, my co-author, is going to talk for a few minutes, and uh, then I will talk for a little bit longer, hopefully not too long. And we'll get into a Q and A, which has kind of tended to be the best part of these things, I think, where it's just a conversation. And with a smaller group like this, the Q and A's are uh, some of the better part of it, anyway. So we'll try to keep the talk short and. Then do, after we're done, just uh, sign books. We have shirts, books, if you feel like getting any of those. Uh, And then we'll probably go over to some sort of restaurant or bar, we don't really know, I haven't figured that out yet, but if anyone wants to join us or has suggestions, then uh, we are happy to hear them, and you're welcome to come along. So anyway, I'm gonna turn it over to Matt Russigno. Matt is the co-author of the No Meat Athlete book with me. He's been a friend of mine from the online plant-based nutrition world for three plus years now. And uh, Matt was a very natural choice for the co-author of this book because he has the, the basically the scientific, the educational background uh, that I don't have. I'm, you know, I'm a, I have done a lot of stuff based on my own experiments, my own research, but it's not uh, credentialed or anything. So Matt has that. He's a registered dietitian who is also a vegan. He was the head of the vegetarian group of the. Oh, Academy
2: okay. of Nutrition and Dietetics yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: which is a big group, it used uh-huh. to be the American Dietetics, dietetics. dietetics. <laughs> and, uh, but besides all that he's also an endurance athlete, an ultra endurance athlete, he's done three uh, ironist Triathlons and he's also mainly a cyclist so he's done what his most impressive I think is the Furnace Peak 508 which is a solo bike race through Death Valley, 508 miles, it takes, I don't know, two, three days or
2: something, <laughs> something crazy on a bike. Uh, so anyway, here he is, never seen him. Thanks, thanks Matt. So, uh, thank you everybody, and thanks for, uh, you never know what to expect. I've only been with Matt um, God, for about a week now, huh? And uh, you never know what to expect at these events and who you're gonna talk to. And it's been a pleasure to be a part of it, for sure. The book and this whole experience and writing for the site. Um, and what I'm going to do is pretty quickly just tell you a little bit about my background because it kind of led into my philosophy that you'll see in the book, and the chapter that I wrote. Um, I became an ethical vegan at 17 years old after many failed attempts at vegetarianism in my Italian-American household, it just did not work, but at 17 I said, I'm not only going to be vegetarian, I'm going to be a vegan. And um, it wasn't long after that, it was actually my high school graduation day I and I had to figure out if I was going to go to college and what I was going to study and what I was going to do. And I was literally looking through the book in an advisor's office and saw nutrition and thought, that's cool, I like food, I'm vegan, it's helpful, everybody has to eat, I'll do that. And I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, I had no idea how hard it was to become a registered dietitian. It's basically a a pre-med, undergrad degree that I have. And um, I decided, I just started getting interesting in talking about food, and then it ended, and I thought, wow, now what? And so I was fortunate enough to go to graduate school at Loma Linda University, um, which is a seventh-day Adventist institution. And they, I went there because they are advocates of vegetarianism, and they have been for well over 100 years, um, which was a unique experience, being around all these lifelong vegetarians that weren't ethical vegetarians or ethical vegans. It's just how they were. You know, so, you would say things like, you know, I'd be excited that so and so is vegetarian, and they, would, they wouldn't even phase that, like, like us. It was kind of like someone like, Well, this person eats meat, and you eat meat. Isn't that exciting? It's like, it doesn't operate that way. It's just a normal part. They didn't feel any different for doing so. And, and when I was there and when I finished, I kind of thought I would be the vegan dietitian, and that's what I would do. But I actually got really interested in public health and education, and I kind of came away from it. And not that I stopped being vegan, because I know um, but I didn't go into full on the vegan nutrition world. And I did get into sort of athletic events through bike touring, and then that turned into double centuries, and that turned into, oh, marathons, why not, and triathlons, and that sort of thing. But I never really thought of this idea of a vegan athlete. And that really hit me in 2006 or 7. I was at the Badwater Ultra Marathon, which most people know of now, through Scott Jurek. And I was there the year that he won and I was at the top and I got to see him finish and I was hoping out with the race and he said, you know, I'm vegan and that helped me win, that my vegan diet actually helps me. And I thought, wow, like, this is kind of a thing. And since then and the work that I've done in vegan nutrition and uh, plant-based diets, what I do is I look at a couple questions. One. Can you get all the nutrients you need from plant foods? Can you be vegan and get all the nutrients in the amounts that you need? And yes, you can. You know, you can get the carbohydrates, protein, and fat in all the right ratios. You know, can you get enough iron from, from plant foods? Yes, you can. There's a long, and how long is that part of the book? Three pages probably about iron because that's something that comes up for omnivores, for strict vegans, for everyone. Iron is an issue, so we talked about that. And the next question is: Are there any benefits? Are there any benefits to eating plant foods? And there are,
1: and not just in the long-term.
2: You know, we know from studies with Seventh-day Adventists that vegetarians are less likely to have every major chronic disease, heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, cancer. If you're vegetarian, you're less likely to get those diseases. But what about short-term, right? Are a lot of athletes concerned about when they're 60? No, probably not. Um, there are 60-year-old athletes, but you know what I mean. Um, and we found, when we look at the research that, yeah, there are a lot of benefits to eating plants. Has anyone heard of the research on beets? Yeah. Right? Yes. a um, cyclist show that's really popular among cyclists that there's actually a benefit to beets where it increases your blood flow, so oxygen gets to your muscles faster, so you can work out harder and for longer. And this is naturally occurring compounds in beets that does this. It's amazing. You can actually now buy, um, I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it. You can buy like a gel pack, but it's beet juice. So you like be riding along and pull out your beet juice. And, and I feel like you know, if you've been vegetarian a long time, you're kind of ahead of the curve, right? Because you've been using <laughs> beets and roasting beets. And, and that's sort of the future of, of nutrition as a field, not just for, for vegans, but we don't deal with scurvy much anymore, right? Now a lot of people are getting vitamin C deficiency. But, so we look at food and say, what are the long-term benefits and really, it's in plant foods, um, and beets is just one example. I'm actually uh, doing a lot of research on cacao. You know, the cacao bean that leads to chocolate, and there's all these benefits to blood flow with cacao. And I think in a few years we're going to see like beets. They're going to be beneficial to athletes. And you know, who's eating cacao right now? It's like the raw vegans that are really pushing cacao. And I think they're ahead of the curve. And so to bring this kind of back, I've been doing a lot of talks on athletes and for vegan athletes, Um, and I get a lot of people who come to our events. We did one at a running store, and I've talked at bike shops a lot, and I get a lot of people who come up to me and say, you know, I don't want to be vegan, I'm not concerned about the animals, but you guys are really on to something about these benefits of plant food. And I think we are ahead of the curve with this book and the information that's in there that a lot of athletes are going to be looking to this you know, as, as an advantage. And um, it, it's been very interesting to see because as an ethical vegan, you, know, you can get, I want everyone to be vegan, it's true, right? But as a health professional, I have to admit, you can get all of those benefits by eating like a vegan, right? Being a flexitarian eating vegan-ish. And I'm seeing more and more athletes that are doing that. And we, re- we wrote the book like that, so that it is accessible to more people. And um, I don't know if you're having this experience, but a lot of people are saying, no, I'm not vegetarian, but I really love this book. There's a lot of great information in there. And so it's been a pleasure to be a part of it. And Matt Matt's philosophies fit really well, so it was a, it was a pleasure to work with him and keep on working with Matt on the site and uh, whatever it ends up being in the future. So that's my two cents about it, and uh, thank you for coming to this, and we'll be both doing the question and answer after Matt's talk, so thank you. All
1: right, so uh, just for those who may not no, me i think probably everyone here does but um, my name is matt frazier i am the author of the new book no meat athlete as well as the blog of the same name which has been around for uh, four and a half years or so now and uh, i am a vegan marathoner first and more recently have become a vegan ultra marathoner but my start in running uh is interesting to say the least i hated running as a kid did, did not like the gym class run. and i dreaded that day every single year and did what I could to avoid it and then later on in sports teams actually quit several of them because I just found out after I joined like I was like yeah I want to play the cross, and then found out how much running there was in practice <laughs> and, and just quit for that reason hated running didn't really even like fitness very much at all until college when I started to get interested in it for the first time some friends and I got into weightlifting and trying to bulk up and add muscle and this is long before I was vegan or vegetarian and uh, in the process of adding all this muscle which we were successful at we also were successful at adding a lot of fat, too. So one day, one of the roommates came home and said, hey guys, I have an idea. Here's how we can lose this fat. Let's go run a marathon. Which to us, as college kids, sounded like a great idea. We said, yeah, let's do it. So the problem was that none of us had ever run more than three miles in our entire lives for at one time. So we uh, went online and you know, we're we're confident that we could do this and started saying, OK, let's go sign up for a marathon. Well, because we weren't runners and didn't know any runners, we didn't even know the name of a marathon sign-up. We didn't know, like, how do you find a marathon? And this is when the internet was, well, well it certainly developed. This was 2002. It wasn't quite what it was now. But anyway, we said, uh, who can think of a marathon? So we started thinking. Of course, when you put the question that way um, to three non-runners, the answer you come up with is the Boston Marathon. So somebody, of course, bought of Boston, and we said, "Okay, great. Let's let's uh, we'll do Boston for our first one." <laughs> so we logged on, filled, or went to the page, and very quickly found out that you can't just sign up for the Boston Marathon. <laughs> you have to actually qualify. And for us, as males under 30, or I guess under 35, uh, back then, before they changed the qualifying standards, it was to a three-hour and 10-minute marathon just to get into Boston. So we were you know, I kind of sort of had to hand it to us that we were not uh, deterred. We, you know, we said, okay, well then what we'll do is we're still gonna run Boston, we'll just have to go qualify first. We'll run a different marathon first for our first one after having not run three miles in our <laughs> lives. We'll run a 310 and then go do Boston after that. So the next day this brilliant plan of ours was still intact. We found the San Diego Rock and Roll Marathon, went online, signed up, put out all the form, all the age, name, everything. And the very last question, of course, says, "What's your projected finish time?" And we not thinking anything of it, throw it out three ten zero zero. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine how the training went uh, for people. Three of us who just didn't know the first thing about running, didn't have running shoes, didn't know that people had special running shorts. I mean, we just had our gym shorts. Uh, we started the training and didn't go all that well. We had <laughs> a lot of priorities around hydration that had nothing to do with running at all, uh, as well as all the other college stuff that just kind of got in the way. So it was not pretty. We all got hurt in the process. But we did all make it to the start line that day. So at we to San Diego. This is from Virginia. Flew so we up to San Diego lined up in the starting corral. And if nobody here has ever run a half, half marathon, or if someone here has never run a half marathon or marathon, uh, what happens is they. Use that projected finish time that you have put in the, in the form to put you in order so that you're not the slower runners aren't getting run over by the faster runners. So we were in the 310 corral, directly behind the people who were invited, the elite runners who we were there. We're <laughs> them and then us, like 10 feet back, and whatever, 20,000 people behind us. And we looked around, and this is really the first time that we realized the magnitude of what we had set out to do with saying we're gonna run 310. And we looked at the people around us and we're like, we do not look like these people. Right <laughs> and we were right, we weren't like them, we weren't trained at all like them. But we still thought maybe we can get this thing done somehow. Uh, we took off running. And the next four hours and 53 <laughs> were some of the most painful of my life, especially those after mile 18, which happened to be the halfway point in terms of time. So half of that 4:53 was spent running the first 18 miles; the second half was used on the last eight miles too. and it was not pretty at all. But I'm happy to say that we all did finish that marathon, and uh, I think you know we had learned a lesson. Basically. We had, we had learned that. You can't just jump into running like this. We were not runners. We had taken on too big of a thing. And we kind of deserved what we got. So my friends, like reasonable people, gave up on the Boston Marathon. (laughs) (laughs) But for whatever reason, I couldn't give up on Boston. So I flew back to Virginia, wanting more than ever to do this, but realizing now just how far away I was and just how big a goal this really was. So I took the first step I knew how to do, and that was to learn about. Goal setting. Figure out how do you set a goal that's this big. Because I was 103 minutes slower than what I wanted to be, and said, how do you set a goal so that you are very likely to stick with it? And what what conditions can you set up that will make you, you know, kind of hold you accountable, and make you keep training once that initial motivation, initial excitement is gone? Because you know it will it will wane a little bit when you have problems. So I went learned about that, did that, and then got to work learning about how to train because I still hadn't really to learn how to run well and avoid injury and I spent the next four years just trying to get back to run a second marathon with this Boston goal still firmly in my mind the first step of that was running a second marathon and actually running the whole thing but I discovered in this process that I had shins that uh, were not very favorable for running I guess you might say every time I would get three weeks or four weeks into a training program I start to have this really bad shin pain which I was told was shin splints and I would just run right through it and it would turn into actual stress fractures. So I would go to the doctor, get x-rays and see the actual cracks in my shins. Uh, and it was really frustrating for four years and I had to learn just all about training. And finally I did figure it out enough to get myself to another finish line. I ran a, four, a 3.53 marathon, a 3.52. So I took about an hour off that first time uh, and still felt like I was, I felt like that was great progress but it was still an eternity away from Boston. And spent the next three years basically trying to learn how to run fast and how to train effectively, not just avoiding injury, but how do you get faster, as well as learning about nutrition. And that was the final piece of the puzzle for me was when I went vegetarian. Uh, I'll get to that story in a bit. But that, you know, I didn't expect it to help me, but I decided to do it anyway. And as it turned out, six months after I went vegetarian, this is seven years now after that first initial terrible, awful marathon, uh, ran a 3.09.59 at glass in New York and got me something to Boston. so the reason I tell you that uh, is first to get applause of course (laughs) second is uh, just so that people realize I'm not an elite runner like that's 309 is great for me that it was fantastic it's still the best marathon I've ever run but that's not an Olympic time or anything like that I mean you know that's that's a 210 marathon not a 310 marathon so what I am is a very regular ordinary guy who has managed to accomplish that extraordinary thing as a runner. That extraordinary thing being taking 103 minutes off your marathon time. More recently than that, uh, I did what I considered my second extraordinary thing, and that was running 100 miles, which was a uh, 100-mile race from Cleveland to Akron in the Burning River 100 miler this last summer. So what I want to do in this talk is basically give you the tools and some of the motivation, I hope, that took me from that 453 marathoner to that 309 marathoner and eventually 100-mile marathon. And those three keys really were learning to set the goal, learning to train for that goal, and then learning to eat for that goal. And I'll touch on each one of those very briefly so that we can get to the Q&A. Um, so the first of those is the goal setting. How do you learn to set goals? You can find all kinds of different programs about it. Everybody has their own approach to it. But what I found when I looked at them, and I, I still do that stuff all the time, is that any good goal setting program has one thing underlying it, no matter how they're teaching it. It's the idea that if you want to really make it very, very likely that you're going to achieve your goal, then set it beyond what you think is realistic. And this sounds sort of counterintuitive. Um, you know, the, What most people think is that if you want to achieve the goal, then make it realistic. But what happens is that when you set that goal that really is ridiculously out there, but importantly, one that is so so motivating to you, and the one that when you imagine yourself achieving that or being that type of person who gets that goal, you know you're just immensely excited, butterflies in your stomach, palms are sweaty, and it's just so much fun to envision being that person. So that action flows from you know, from the setting of this goal. Compare that to one that's much less exciting. Like had I set out and said that what I want to do is just run a second marathon. If that was my big goal, was run a second marathon. Uh, You know, I don't think I would have lasted through the difficult period. Those four years that it took me to get back to run that second marathon, during that period I went and saw a a physical therapist for the shin thing and he said, well, Matt, the solution is to stop running. You are not designed to be a runner. Your legs are kind of bow-shaped and you're not built to be a distance runner. Just go pick a different sport. So I think looking back, had my goal at that point just been run a second marathon, I probably would have said, you know, he's right. I ran one marathon, that's good enough, why don't I just be satisfied with that and move on and do whatever. But by that point, I had convinced myself that I was gonna qualify for Boston. And I had envisioned what kind of fitness level all around, not just running, would I have to be in to qualify for Boston 100 minutes faster than I currently run a marathon. What kind of discipline would I have to have as a runner, but also in the rest of my life and organizing my life so that I could put that training in, so that I wanted to train. And I was at the point where, I wanted this so badly that when I would go to bed at night, I couldn't wait to get up in the morning and train. Like I was, I would lay in bed awake, excited to get up to the next workout the next day. Um, anytime it rained, it, it was no question. You know that wasn't like the excuse to take the day off, which often for me nowadays that must have it is. But back then, when I was so focused on Boston, it didn't matter, rain or shine. I was getting out there to train, and that's what happens when you set a goal that is right there, where on the cusp of possible and impossible, where it's like it's unrealistic to anyone you tell it to, but. In your mind, you have this idea that just maybe you can make that happen. And what you need to do is take that little just maybe and focus on it and convince yourself basically that you can do that. And think about it over and over and envision yourself and get to work on it. And uh, I, I just believe that that's so much more, more valuable than having a goal that is somewhere closer to where you are now. Something that seems, you know, we tell people about it where they say, well, that seems like a big goal, but yeah, I think you can probably do that. To me, that's not an exciting goal. And you'll know when you've set the right one, the right distance, I mean, the big, the size of the goal. When it's right for you, you will know, because the action will come from it. Once you've set it and decided to do it, and really made a commitment to do it, the action just comes from it. You can't help but go get to work on it because you're so darn excited to do it. So that's the big goal setting. That's really the only key you need to know about it. Uh, Like I said, though, there's all kinds of different programs. So if you've never done it before, it's worth checking one out. Just find a goal setting program and, and do it. So once I had done that, as I mentioned, I had to still had to learn how to actually train. Because setting the goal and committing to it was one thing, but you have to actually go do something. And uh, for me, that was very difficult because of the shin issue. There were two big keys that I learned. First one, I'll just very briefly say, I, had, I learned that it was okay to run slowly. Because that gym class mile run that I mentioned that I dreaded as a kid had basically taught me that running equals running fast. Because that everybody was trying to get their fast mile time you possibly could. And when I dreaded that day, what I was dreading was how painful it would be, especially during those second and third laps around the track
2: where you know I was going as fast as I possibly could. You were, I was in that fight or flight survival state that you very quickly get in
1: when you're going at an intensity that is near the top of what you can do. What I had to learn was that you don't have to do that. Like running, you, every workout doesn't need to leave you exhausted. You can finish a workout and have more energy than when you left and that may be a perfectly good and suitable workout for what you're trying to accomplish that day. Nowadays, 80% or so of my training is at a pace that's conversational, meaning you can carry on the conversation while you're doing it. So I'll go out for a seven mile run, put on an audio book, which like I absolutely love that time for, for using it for that purpose, and I'll come back from the seven mile run with more energy than when I left. That's an entirely different thing than running was in my head before then. Before it was just this, this awful thing I had to do. Uh, once, it's, once I started running slow, so much change about it. The other big one is a form key. And it was something I learned from the running coach Jack Daniels, who was a funny name, I know. Uh, but he's, he's a running coach, kind of an old school running coach, been around for decades now. And I read had a little uh, training, runner's world training log, and he wrote a little paragraph in it. And I, after reading this, got one of his books and learned a lot more. But what I learned here was that when it comes to running form, all you really need to think about, I mean, there are lots and lots of things you can think about, but all you really need to to, to be successful at at a recreational level is the idea of running, turning your feet over at a rate of 180 steps per minute. So this is pretty fast, this is three steps per second and this has, this has nothing to do with the speed of you know, your pace, your running pace, it's just how quickly your legs are turning over. Whether you're going at a fast or slow pace, you always want to be at 180 steps per minute. And what this does is prevents us from taking that big long stride where you land on your heel like this come crashing down on that heel, because that stride is, if you've thought about or learned about the barefoot running stuff at all, that stride is blamed for most of the 70% of runners who get injured each year. It's this idea that we take this long stride and become crashing down on that heel. When you force yourself to run 180 steps per minute, you can't take a long stride anymore. It, that's, like, that's like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Those are pretty quick steps, and if you've never thought about it before, you're probably naturally around 150 or 160 per minute, which is significantly fewer steps. So in order to take this much quicker amount, you've got to shorten your stride, and as a result, your steps become quicker and lighter. Also as a result, your weight stays over your feet. So instead of landing your foot out here, you're running in place. it's almost as if you're running in place, but you're moving forward while you're doing it. So does that makes any sense? Your weight's staying over your feet. Um, And when your weight stays over your feet, that forces you to come down somewhere on your midfoot, rather than really hard on your heel or on your toe or anything else weird like that. Uh, it might be that you naturally, when you run at 180 steps per minute, still have a mild heel strike or a mild toe strike. That is totally fine, I think. We've kind of gotten scared as a group of runners of the heel strike because of Born to Run and the barefoot running stuff. Uh, but I think if you're running at 180 steps per minute, then your body is basically doing what it's supposed to do. And if that means naturally having a small amount of heel strike, I think that's totally fine. So, this is very much similar to the barefoot running, as I mentioned. The barefoot running idea is that if you try to land like this with no shoes on, it really hurts. And that's this amazing, brilliant natural feedback mechanism we have built into our bodies. As if something hurts, don't you can't do it. That's, that's why it hurts. Come tell us not to do it. So the modern running shoe with its big heel allows us to basically bypass that feedback mechanism entirely. And we can run in this way with this big heel strike, all this braking action, this energy going up through our leg that's absorbed by that shoe. So in the short term, we don't feel any pain, which is we think is great, so we keep doing it. But in the long term, we're running in this way that we're not designed or built to run. So it's not really any wonder when you think about it that way that so many runners do get injured each year. So the idea behind the barefoot thing then is if you take the shoe off, and barefooters will t- take it off entirely, then all of a sudden you can't run like that anymore. So naturally, your weight stays over your feet. You run with shorter, quicker, lighter steps. Exactly the same thing as we're seeing with the 180 per minute. So really, they're just two ways of getting to the same basic type of running form. And uh, Scott Jurek, who Matt Russigno mentioned as a fam- very incredibly famous, the most accomplished vegan runner, by far the most accomplished vegan ultrarunner, and perhaps the greatest ultrarunner who has you know, lived during the past 20, 30 years. Um, he said, has said that when you get to this 180 steps per minute, most of your, rest of your form just naturally falls into place. And that's where I was going with that's really all you need to focus on. Like, yes, there are little things you can think about. You can think about your arms swing, and you can think about your legs going back. I and mean, there's different chi running, and all kinds of different methods. But at the core of all of them is this 180 steps thing. And if you get that down, you have really what it takes to avoid injury. And by the way, this is from, they, they got this idea from looking at marathoners, elite marathoners, people who are winning marathons. So while when you try to adopt this, it'll feel really weird and very inefficient, um, you can rest assured that it is a very efficient form of running, it just takes some getting used to. It. But people who are winning races, putting in 150 miles a week perhaps, you know, they're not they're avoiding injuries running this way, but they're also running fast this way. So it'll feel really weird, it'll take you three, four weeks perhaps before it does start to feel useful, or. Where it doesn't have to feel efficient. Um, it took me staring at a treadmill. I didn't do much tre- treadmill running, but what I did was just stare at the clock on a treadmill and make sure I had three steps every single second as those seconds ticked off. Did that for about 20 minutes at a time. I don't know, three four times a week. After three to four weeks, I had it down. Nowadays, you can get a metronome. You can find songs. If you just Google 180 beats per minute songs, you'll find songs that that will you know you can just line your steps up with the beat of the song, basically, and Get there over the course of a few weeks so i strongly recommend you do that it'll feel weird i promise but uh it's worth it it's worth it in terms of efficiency and mainly injury prevention so that much got me some big improvements i ran the second marathon did it in a way that was pretty good was able to run almost the entire thing and started making some progress I then went down to 336 with my next marathon Uh, but at this point as i was making this progress towards boston and thinking that hey i might actually be able to do this thing I got this, what I considered to be extremely inconvenient urge, and that was to go vegetarian. <clears throat> my reason was that I had had a dog for the first time, I moved out of the house and you know, had my own dog, really connected with this dog, and just started reading some books about consciousness and how animals think, and th- you know, not vegan or vegetarian books by any means, but just started on my own kind of came to this idea that the way animals think isn't all that different from us, and I just didn't feel right eating something like a pig that, that I heard was as smart as this dog that I love so much. But I thought that becoming a vegetarian, giving up the meat, meant giving up calories, especially giving up protein. And for me that meant giving up on this Boston I didn't know that there were people who could run a mar- you know, that either you could be a marathoner and a vegetarian. So I decided that I wasn't going to do it yet. And I, for the time being, said I'm not going to eat cows and pigs for, for however long. And I was satisfied with that. Like, I wasn't totally happy, but I thought, that'll allow me to still eat the chicken breast and still make progress towards Boston as a marathoner. And once I get there, then I'll go vegetarian. Well, that worked for a little while, uh, but then I got frustrated and I plateaued with my training. Got to about 3.20, 10 minutes shy of getting to Boston. Uh, but at that point, I thought that I could not take any more time off. I felt like I, everything was going perfectly well. I was running the fastest courses I could imagine. I had done two marathons in three months, so I started one from, basically started training from marathon shape. Three months later, did a marathon. The, every, all the conditions were perfect for a Boston qualifying time, no injuries or anything, and I ended up 10 minutes shy of the goal. So I had taken 93 minutes off my time, but still had 10 minutes left, and 10 minutes, when you've taken that far, when you're at that close to your potential, is an eternity. It's like, where am I possibly gonna find 10 minutes? So kind of in frustration, I said, I don't think I'm gonna get there to Boston now. Like I'm ready to almost give up on this thing. Um, I don't care so much about the diet anymore. I'm just gonna go vegetarian and if it doesn't work out if it makes me start losing time as a a runner then so be it. I'm just gonna do this because on my current trajectory I don't think I'm gonna get there so I don't have anything to lose. So this was uh, during a month, after that second marathon in three months, that had proven to be too much for me actually. And a week after that race, I started having some IT band issues so I was injured, and I couldn't, really couldn't run for five minutes without the, my knee locking up and having to limp home, basically. Um, so during this month off that I was taking from injury, I decided to make the transition to vegetarian. And my first long run back from that injury, my first long run, when I went back out again, um, it's a run that I will never, ever forget, because it was a 12-mile route that I had done a lot of times from my house. It would leave my front door, run to a trail, do the trail, and then come back. 12 miles, I had done it all the time before, and I went out on this run, my first run back from injury, and my first real long run as a vegetarian, and all I was doing was paying attention to my knee, my IT band, I did not want this thing to go up, I didn't want to get set back again, and you know lose the progress that I would had when I was rehabbing, so I, that's all I thought about, didn't even bring a watch out. But when I got back from this run, I looked at the clock, so I did look at it when I left, and realized that I was back from this thing six minutes further than I'd ever done it in my entire life. And here I'm supposed to be at not even full strength because I'm recovering from this injury and I'm expecting that the diet is not going to be working very well. So I was shocked to come home and see that it was six minutes earlier than I'd ever done it before. So very quickly, excitedly, I did the math and said 12, minute, or 12 miles, six minutes, that's 30 seconds per mile. That is the difference between me and qualifying for Boston if I could just keep it up for 26.2 miles. So at this point, I wish there were more drama to the story, that it would be more interesting, but. I just basically went out and had the best training summer I'd ever had in my entire life. I was able to put in three really hard workouts a week, follow each one the next day by an easy workout. So I was running six times a week, four miles than I'd ever done before, at higher intensity than I'd ever done before, and just wasn't getting injured. Felt like, kept thinking, surely this injury is going to come, because in the past it always has, but it never did. Went Got to the start line totally fresh, ready, everything went perfectly, and I think that pretty much had to happen for me to run 309, and, uh, but I didn't. So, Six months after I qualified, for, uh, after I went vegetarian, took this last ten minutes off my time when I'd been working so hard and been so frustrated for the past you know, year before that. So people say like, what was it about going vegetarian that did that? And by the way, this is still not vegan. This was just my my first, you know, delving into it and went vegetarian first. So what made the difference? The first one obvious is weight loss. I lost about five pounds within the first two weeks of going vegetarian, which quite frankly scared me because I was like, you know, I'm not that big a guy to begin with five pounds in two weeks, like, can I keep that up for a year? There aren't gonna be many pounds left here to do anything. (laughs) But thankfully, they they leveled off. I lost seven pounds total. And that seven pounds, because I didn't lose any strength with that seven pounds, as measured by how I was going in the gym, that seven pounds made a tremendous difference on how fast you can run. Those 12 miles in that first run, that was probably the big reason for that. And 26.2 miles, even more dramatic effect. They say uh, two seconds per pound per mile is what you can expect lose in time from a weight loss. It works the same way with weight gain, obviously. Um, as long as you're talking about small gain. I and mean, Once you get into 30 pounds, 40 pounds of weight loss is gains, that number kind of goes out the window. But that's a significant amount of time. And uh, that, so that was the first one. Very obvious, hard to deny that that played a big part. The other one, though, is one that, because of what I do, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of elite athletes, um, Brendan Brazier, Scott Jurek, Mitchell Roll, Hilary Biscay, and ask them, What is it about this diet that works so well? Like, Why do you choose this diet? Almost without fail, what they tell me is that they can recover faster on a plant-based diet than they can on any other kind of diet. This, Brendan Brazier, if any of you have read his book, this is precisely how he got to a plant-based diet. He was in high school, wanted to be a pro triathlete, but wasn't necessarily the best or the most gifted athlete. But he was the one who was willing to go try all different diets in high school and figure out which one worked for him the very best. And he found that plant-based was exactly that one. So for someone like Brendan Brazier, what that means is getting in more workouts from the competition in a given week. Because you can recover faster, you can get out there and work out again sooner, get in more workouts, make more progress, and basically be ahead of the competition. But for me, and for most people here I would imagine, uh, we're not concerned about getting in more workouts per week. Like I don't have any desire to get in nine or 10 workouts in a given week. I have my <laughs> five or six and I'm happy with that. So recovering faster doesn't mean for me getting more in. I have time and kids and all kinds of other things that are preventing me from wanting to get in any more than six workouts. What it means though, if I'm just gonna do those same fixed six workouts, what better recovery means is that you're showing up more like closer to 100% each time. And what that means is that you're much, much less likely to get injured. Then if you were going out there, if you were coming if, let's say you were go to do a workout, um, really takes it out of you and then you come back two days later and you're only at 95%, say, of your full capacity, well, keep that up for a few weeks, and you can see how losing 5% each time very quickly gets you to a point where an injury is going to come up. And that's, I think, what I had been expecting to happen. That's what I felt so many times in the past, but that this next time when I went vegetarian, putting in all these hard workouts, I think it didn't happen because I was more recovered each time. So for us, for me at least, um, better recovery just means injury prevention. That's what it turns <clears> things <throat> into. And uh, the result, the, the difference has been dramatic. I, I was always dealing with injuries then, before I went vegetarian, since, and especially since I went vegan, I haven't had any injuries, almost not any at all. Um, as I mentioned, those two marathons in three months, that had caused me to get this injury, because that was the first time I'd ever tried that, and it was way too much. Just a year after that, after going vegetarian and experimenting a little bit with vegan, I ran two 50 mile races within three months of each other, didn't have any injury issues, and, more recently this last summer in the training for the 100 mile race in the last two months of that had to do a 50k a 50 miler and the 100 itself so in two months did those no injuries whatsoever all the training for the 100 not a single injury issue and to me i think that i mean i think that is most definitely due to the diet so so um you know people ask a little bit like what what mechanism you know what's actually happening in your body that would cause that sort of thing and it's hard to say. I don't think there's a consensus out there that, that would say what it is. Uh, and I think what it is is that I ate totally differently. And you know, you know, it doesn't have to be going plant-based. Like, I, don't think, I don't think it was that meat was poisoning my system or anything like that. I think it, instead, it was that meat isn't plants, and plants are so amazingly good for you. So I think meat is just, it's just taking up calories, same with dairy, giving you a lot of calories that don't do all that much for you. And when you get rid of it or drastically reduce it, and bring in all these new plant foods, you're just exposing yourself and providing your body with so many different nutrients. Uh, The variety in my diet dramatically increased Like instead of going out to the store and buying the same 15 foods every single week. And I don't think I was eating much more than that. It was like chicken breast and brown rice, sometimes a steak and pasta. It was always meat and starch. And for me, I I thought protein, carbs, fat, I had read the books about that stuff and wanted as an athlete to get those but I didn't need beef vegetables to get those. Like the chicken breast and the brown rice could get me the fat and carbs and protein that I wanted. So vegetables were the last thing on my mind. They very rarely made it onto the plate. And once I became vegetarian, though, that all changed. Because now, like the chicken breast was gone, there was no meal there unless I started it with plants. So I would go to the farmer's market and just you know find what was local, what was in season right then, and then cook meals based on it. Which was, this was a new thing for me. Um, I think the number of vegetables that I started eating in a given week, or the number of total foods really, went from that 15 probably to 50 or 75. I mean, just a huge increase in number, and week to week it changed. It wasn't even the same week to week. So this wide, wide variety represents a ton of different available nutrients, makes it very difficult to become deficient in any nutrient, B12 being the one exception, which of course should supplement for if you're gonna be a a vegan. Um, But everything else, I think, when I was eating that same basket of 15 foods a week, it's very likely that there were things that I was missing, or at least a little bit low in, and not to the point that it was sending me to the hospital. But when I was putting my body through marathon training and working out really hard three times a week, I think there was my body probably was trying to draw on things that maybe weren't there. And once you increase your variety, you give yourself all kinds of different plants with all kinds of different nutrients and phytochemicals and whatever else, lots of them with anti-inflammatory properties, by the way, uh, you know, recovery speeds up a lot. Finally, digestion might be a big factor. You know, there's Meat and dairy are, are said to be harder to digest. I don't know how much science there is behind that, but it's said that they are harder to digest. Plant food digests much faster and easier. And as a result, your body can use its resources for recovery, for to help your muscles rebuild, rather than on digestion. Digestion takes a huge amount of your energy. So that's really what I think was going on. Um, more than that, really than anything, is that I started eating almost entirely whole foods. I would start going to the grocery store and spending all my time in the produce section, checking out the root section with the turnips and the brown, hairy things, and all that stuff that I'd always (laughs) just ignored. And the bulk section, which I had also ignored, the nuts and the grains and everything raw in there. Uh, I had just ignored that for so long, and my shopping became all about the produce and the bulk section. Going out to eat, I had gone all the time to Applebee's and Appleback. That was like what you did when you went out to eat where I was from. This is in the suburbs of Baltimore. And I just didn't know any different than that. So when I went vegetarian, I couldn't do that anymore, at least not, not to eat healthily. So I had to find the Indian restaurant and the Thai restaurant that had been there all the time, but I had just managed to ignore and never even see. So I started eating that way, started bringing those foods home and cooking like that at home. Everything changed. I ate so many more raw foods, such a wide variety of foods. Um, I said raw, I meant whole foods. But I also did start eating a lot more raw and fresh foods than I ever had before. So I really think that's that's the big reason for the change. Um, finally, the last thing about, about diet, and then we'll get to the Q&A here, is protein. Everyone always wants to know, of course, where do you get your protein, especially as an athlete, but even just as a non-athlete. People ask that all the time of vegetarians and vegans. My answer to that is always two parts. The first is that we really don't need that much protein. Uh, you know, we certainly don't need 150 grams a day like some, some people are trying to get nowadays. Um, The US or the the dietary reference intakes are like 45 grams a day for women, 55 grams a day for men. It's really not that much, even if you say that athletes need 20% more calories or so than than a sedentary person, that 20% I believe should be 20% more protein, 20% more carbs, and 20% more fat. It's not that the athlete just needs to increase their protein to make up all those extra calories. It's not like that. So it's not that much more protein. Um, When I've asked some of the the athletes who I mentioned before, like how much protein do you actually get in a given day or just as part of your diet, they almost always say a number that's really close to 15%. 13 to 15% of their calories come from protein. Which, interestingly enough, is the exact same amount that's in Chris Carmichael's book. Lance Armstrong's old coach wrote a book probably 15 years ago now uh, called Food for Fitness. And in that, which is for general athletes, not vegans or plant-based, anything like that. It's just for general endurance athletes He says, get 13% of your calories from protein. That's it. It's not that much. To give you an example of something that has 13% of its calories from protein, brown whole wheat pasta, which seems like the carbohydrate food, the food that shouldn't have any protein in it at all, that has 13% of its calories from protein. So basically, if you ate nothing but whole wheat pasta, that was your entire diet. Granted, you'd have all kinds of nutritional issues. (laughs) But protein wouldn't be the problem. You'd be getting the amount of protein that these elite athletes are getting and that Chris Carmichael says you need. It's really not an issue. And that's just one example. Protein is in everything. It's in broccoli and kale. And granted, you can't eat those foods as your protein source because they're not calorically dense enough for you to get enough calories that way, first of all. Um, But it's just an example. It's in everything. It's not just in meat, dairy, and egg. It's in all the foods you eat. And especially if you're eating whole foods where the protein hasn't been stripped away, like white pasta versus wheat pasta, um, or alternative grain pasta, I mean, just whole food stuff, you're gonna get way more protein. And honestly, I don't even think about where my protein is coming from or how much I'm getting each day. I just eat almost entirely whole foods, and in every meal a day, every, every one of my six meals a day, which are small meals, not big ones, um, I try to make sure there's some sort of protein source in there. It might be just hummus spread on a bagel, if I'm having a bagel, it might be seeds and nuts in the smoothie, and I'm having a fruit smoothie with vegetables in it. Could be beans in a salad, just basically always trying to add something that I consider protein-rich so that I'm not going and you know slipping into a routine where I'm eating just carbohydrates all the time. Uh, and finally, these foods, I know they're weird that I'm mentioning, probably not to you guys, but when I tell people that I eat a smoothie for lunch and dinner sometimes, or that when I'm traveling around the country, my breakfast is often trail mix and raw fruit, and sometimes a salad from Whole Foods, people who, who have not been exposed to this kind of eating are like, that's, that's not real food, like that's not even, like how is that a breakfast? And, and, and I can understand why. But that's been I think one of the big reasons this diet has been so helpful, not just for me, but for so many others. And it's that what I do now, the way I eat, I don't care about that square meal anymore where you can identify, here's the protein, here's the carbohydrate, and here's the fat. I don't even care about the hot meal anymore. If I can combine some of the foods that I believe are the healthiest in the short term, the highest energy in the short term, most protective against disease in the long term, then to me, that's a meal. So trail mix, fruit, and salad is a perfectly good breakfast. In fact, it's very similar to the smoothie that I make when I'm at home and I have a blender with me. It's just not blended up, basically. Um, Same with with hummus on a a sprouted grain sandwich, and people are like, that's not a sandwich, that's just the topping of the sandwich. But sprouted grains and hummus, to me, two fantastic high-energy, high energy, protective foods—that's a meal to me, and uh, it, it's just so different from the way I used to eat. And I, I really believe that that's that's much more the reason for success as that, we, that we're seeing in athletes than simply that, that as soon as you remove the meat and dairy, like all of a sudden the poison is gone, so now you're now you are thriving. It's more that you're bringing in all of these incredible foods. And I really think that's the reason why we see the, the better recovery and the greater health too of athletes who go plant-based. So finally, the very last thing I want to talk about is cycle back to the goals thing one more time. My hope is that you won't have just listened to the goal section, but actually go home and do something about it. Like Go home and think of, you probably already have that goal in your head. My guess is that you have something, like I did, that just sort of bubbles up in your head a lot as, as like, wow, it would be really, really cool to do whatever it is. But. We're conditioned, we've learned that failure is bad, and looking, looking like a failure, looking humiliated, that's all bad in front of people. So what we've kind of learned to do is just not really go after big things anymore. Just be satisfied with something that's like, okay, that's kind of a fun goal, but probably not that hard. What I'm asking you to do, begging you to do really, is go home and actually set some sort of big crazy goal, some unrealistic thing. Uh, I, you know, I'm giving you permission to go be crazy and unrealistic for a little while, and what I hope, though, won't happen is that, and this does happen a lot, is you think of that big goal, but then you don't do anything about it, and within a day or two days, the rest of life just comes rushing back in, all the distractions and the busyness and everything else comes in, and you forget about it. It just goes away, and then it goes, you know, gets pushed back down like it has so many times before. So take some sort of action that brings it out of your head and into the real world. That might be signing up for a race. That's a common trick most people do to just sort of all of a sudden have something they have to do. But even better than that, perhaps, is just get some accountability, like by putting it on Facebook, putting it on Twitter, starting a blog about it. Um, the more you can actually involve other people, like tell everybody you know. But more than that, try to get a partner who's going to also have some big, crazy, ridiculous goal, and they're also determined to go get it no matter what. And you know, be, a pa- be partners and say, here's what we're going to do each day, and we're going to make sure for each other that we do this. That accountability is so crucial. Um, it, you know, just having someone else involved each and every day, not just a one-time thing where you tell someone and then they all forget about it, but have someone involved day to day. That makes a big, big difference. It just gets out of your head. And the moment you create this accountability, the moment you bring it into the real world, your chances of succeeding go way, way up. And I know this is scary and unnatural because it involves taking that first step. We have this, this big fear that holds us back all the time. Going and creating that accountability is basically, for a few minutes at least, saying, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm just going to get this out there, even if it is scary. And what you're doing when you do that is you're making this fear become not something that's holding you back in your head, but you're kind of putting it behind you and making it now a tool that is pushing you forward. Because now, once once it's out there, you can get over it for just five minutes and just enough to create this accountability, set it up. Then all of a sudden, the fear is the motivator. Because now you've told everybody, you have to basically do it. Or, yeah, you are going to look ridiculous and be humiliated. So that's exactly what I did with the Boston thing. Uh, I bet friends money that I would qualify for Boston and lost that bet by 103 minutes. So yeah, that was humiliating for a little bit. Of course it was. But as soon as people realized that that one little failure wasn't big capital F failure, that it was just like the first bit of feedback I'd gotten, the feedback that said, you are 103 minutes away from doing this. And when I went and signed up for a second race, then people took a look and were like, Ah, okay so that's not really the end we shouldn't go into humiliation make fun of this guy mode
2: mm-hmm.
1: so I failed again in that second race and by the way each one of these times and it's happened five times five different big failures I told everyone before please come watch me at this race I'm going to qualify for Boston here I was getting that accountability on a big scale and it sounds like embarrassing it sounds like wow I would hate to fail badly five times with all my friends watching but it really did the opposite. What happened was that those friends started to realize how serious I was. That I was more serious about this goal than they'd ever been serious about anything in their lives, and that I'd ever been serious about anything in my life. And they wanted to know when was your next race? You know, when? Are you, how's the training going? Do you think you're going to do it this time? All of a sudden, this big scary thing that you know everybody making fun of me for going out and trying to do something like that, um, they became the support system, and they were this huge motivating force. That just made it impossible, and like, I couldn't quit and let them down. It just, it just wasn't gonna happen. And this is like, this is why we like movies, like Rocky and Rudy, where you see the hero and they have some goal that everyone thinks is silly, and like, how can you go after this thing? And you see them going after it and then failing, and they get up and they go after it and they fail and they do it again and again and again, and you see them every time getting up after this getting knocked down. <laughs> we love watching this kind of stuff. And as inspiring as it is to see it happening, like on the screen, I can tell you from experience that it's even better to be the person who's there, the one seeing others be inspired by you, basically being the one who is knocking, getting knocked down, getting back up every single time. So my hope is that you will go out there, set these goals, create some accountability around them, and then go make them happen. Because with the groups I've been talking to around the country, There's so much good to be put out into the world by the people who are showing up to these talks, like compassionate, active people who want to be examples. Um, There's so much good to be put out into the world by you guys going out there and making this stuff happen. So as I said, I am asking you and begging you to please just go make it happen. All right, thank you very much. All right, so we're back, and I hope you enjoyed that. That was pretty much the talk in some form or another that I gave at all these events. The first three or four events, I was doing something different, more of a talk aimed at um, explaining explaining why this diet had been so good and why I thought it had been so good for me as, as an athlete. But what I found after I think it was three events of doing that talk was that most people showing up at the talk were already – on board with the vegetarian or vegan diet and were themselves runners or athletes of some kind so they knew that this worked and they had experienced the benefits as i mentioned i met so many people who had these great stories uh, and it felt like I, I didn't need to be saying this i was telling people stuff they already knew and and that you know i don't i don't think that was a bad plan going into it like i thought for some reason, i just didn't know what the audience would be i thought it might be all no meat athlete audience or it might be people who are just kind of curious or it might be people who you know, saw a sign at their running store and decided to show up. And like, yeah, there were some of them, but I think what I changed it to was more of this this thing in the context of my own story and my own journey to qualify for the Boston Marathon, um, of which, as you just heard, if you listen to that, the the plant-based diet was the the final step and a big step of the final 10 minutes off of that marathon when I really felt that I had plateaued and and 10 minutes seemed impossible to to find, you know, where was I going to find 10 minutes more to take off my time um so it, it worked well enough. I'm still not hundred percent happy with it. Like I just I don't know. I, I just I just would like to improve as a speaker for sure. But had and, and some people listening to this probably did hear me in the first in the first few events, um I I definitely got a lot better. And that was <laughs> one of the really cool things about the the like I, about the whole tour was that it forced me to do that. And I had always told myself I just don't like public speaking. Like not that I froze up or or you know panicked or anything like that it was just that i never really enjoyed it and and thought i never feel comfortable when i'm in front of an audience this made me get over that like after i had done the new version of the talk once i had done that about five times it felt like it, it didn't matter every night was just do it again and i would get up there and like when you first get introduced by, by whoever the the host is and then they say and here's matt fraser and then it's like you go out and you look for the first time and see this whole audience looking at you. And there's that brief moment of, of like terror, like, Oh my gosh, everyone's staring <laughs> at me. <laughs> um, but, but it started lasting for like three seconds and then, and then it would be just gone completely. And then it'd be comfortable, which, which was cool. It was kind of a cool lesson for me. It was like, if you don't like something and you're uncomfortable with something, then Make yourself, do yeah, it, just do it, just do it. Like find a way to force yourself to do it. and, You get used to it, and maybe Mm -hmm. that's not true with everything, but but with with public speaking, it certainly was. So anyway uh, – go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say I I felt the talk – my delivery got a lot better. I still want to get better as a speaker and and have more emotion in my voice. I'm just sort of a – still an introverted and shy person just in general by default, and it takes a lot of work for me in front of an audience to – I convey a lot of emotion and have a lot of ups and downs and variation in my voice, uh, just because that's kind of a, I don't know what the word is revealing thing to do, like be up there and be emotional rather than just kind of being low key and, and chill. So um,
0: vulnerable. Yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. So, I mean, I, I feel like I have a ways to go still as a speaker, but it was incredible to, to just get over the, the nervousness part of it that had that just completely disappear.
0: Yeah, I I thought it was great. I, um, you know, the first time I heard it was in Phoenix, and and I didn't really know what to expect. At that point, you had been on tour for several weeks, and, you know, and as someone who I feel like I, I know you and I know your story pretty well, you know, I just kind of thought it would be a little recap of that and wasn't expecting all that much. But I was, you know, really blown away by the presentation or your talk and found it really inspiring myself. And it actually, you know, you challenge people in the, in the talk to set a big goal and go out and immediately start... Telling people and, and putting yourself out there to you know put, putting this goal out there, um, and I actually it was inspired to do it as soon as I got home. I had been thinking about running a hundred miler for a while and and knew I was probably going to do it next year, but um, hadn't really told anybody and hadn't hadn't definitely hadn't put it out there. Um, and I listened to you and and I did it. I, I and now I'm <laughs> I'm all set to actually started training this week to. You know, that's to do right. this hundred.
1: That's right. You did your first twelve mile run, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. I
1: remember that one from from the Brian Powell plan. That.
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. From from Iron Fire. Um. Or not Iron. Farr, from uh Relentless Forward Progress.
1: Right. Right. Yep. And, and you did a uh, blog post that that announced it to everyone, and yeah, included some excerpts from the talk and things there. So yeah, we'll, we'll link that one up in the show notes.
0: Yeah, but uh, you know, I thought it was really neat. I thought um, I think that what you have to say about. You know, just the perseverance and and going back time after time to run that marathon is is really inspiring and, and it 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 rings true to to a lot of people who have these goals but you know keep getting knocked down and
1: right yeah I love that stuff I mean just just thinking about having given that talk now forty some forty times probably um you know just that same idea still it just like starts to make me want to go online and like watch a watch a <laughs> video of some somebody doing something cool I don't know. It's just like it. It sticks to me. I I love that stuff. It's inspiring, and uh, I this. Assuming we do play the Austin version of the recording, or that's the one that we. Assuming that's the one we did play, because I haven't still as as we're recording this, hadn't yet um decided whether it would be that or the Ashford one. But th- that that last part of the talk, which I always thought was the strongest and the one that people responded to, and like at the end in the in the book signings they would. Come up and say, I really like the goals portion of your talk, and now I have my big goal that I'm going to go do, and here's how I'm going to announce it, and here's how I'm going to, you know, do my plan. Well, that that part I always thought was the strongest, but in this Austin event, I was kind of <laughs> laughing because, uh, okay, so now now we're getting into a uh, inside joke, but now, <laughs> Wait, okay, you got to explain it. Okay, so you and Matt Rossigno and I, in, at some point, some city, I don't, I guess it was uh, Phoenix, watched. Watched Kingpin. Someone randomly was talking about Amish people, and we we thought of Kingpin, the movie with uh, Woody Harrelson, vegan Woody Harrelson, and Randy Quaid, and whoever else. And uh, not really a good movie, but but kind of funny and fun. And uh, the the hero there, who I guess would be would be uh, Munson, <laughs> or uh-huh. or the Amish guy, <laughs> um, that he goes on his own journey. Uh, and so anyway, we what you and we just there were so many dumb jokes. If you haven't seen this movie, watch it and you realize how dumb some of the jokes are and um lowbrow some of this humor is. But anyway, what you guys were saying, having heard my talk, I think maybe you'd already you must have heard it maybe just once, but the part where I always mentioned
0: no, no that, I I'd heard it by the time we got to Austin I heard it probably four times. Yeah.
1: Oh, were we in Austin when we watched Kingpin though? Oh, oh, in Phoenix. Yeah, just the one time. I right? guess it was just once, but Anyway, you, someone suggested that I put Kingpin in the talk when I'm listening when I'm at the end talking about Rudy and Rocky, which are two movies that that really do inspire me and and give me those you know feelings where I want to go fight and change the world. Um, one of you guys suggested that I that I include Kingpin in that list at the end and say Rocky, Rudy, and Kingpin, and uh, we just started laughing about that and I could <laughs> not get it out of my mind. And then I, I remember I glanced up at you guys during that talk in Austin and saw when I when I said Rudy and Rocky that you both had your heads down with smiles on your face, yeah. not wanting to make eye contact or not wanting to laugh out loud. So I was so distracted for the last five minutes of that talk, the one that I think we're going to have played here. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so yeah. if it Matt, sounds... Matt and
0: I both happened to say Kingpin under our breath at the same time. And... <laughs> so if it yeah. sounds
1: less inspiring on this recording, then, then uh, we're making it out to be... That may partially explain why. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, watch Kingpin if you haven't. That's that's the takeaway from this podcast: is that it's an amazing film, an important film, and one that you should not miss. <laughs> exactly. All right. So, um, to, let's. I want to hear about the hundred mile. I mean, I, I know it, but I want people to hear about it. Which? What's the plan? I know you have a date in mind, and it still might be one of the two races, or have you have you made a decision yet?
0: Uh, no, I haven't. Um, yeah. So I. After getting home from from the book tour, I kind of uh, looked around at different hundreds that that I had been thinking about and that I knew uh, they would inspire me a bit. Um, and they found two of them that happened to both be on the same weekend, which is May seventeenth of next year, two thousand fourteen. And one I'm really hoping to get into, but it's a lottery, so yeah, I'm not I'm not for sure I'll, I'll be able to get into that one. But I do have a backup, which is the same weekend to. So Massanutten 100 is the is the one I I would like to do um, and it's pretty grueling and it's supposed to yeah. be a really tough uh 100 here in Virginia um, but that's inspiring to me that that challenge um, for me I would I you know it's all about pushing myself as hard and as far as I can go and uh, part of that is going to be on a on a difficult course is part of what's inspiring to me so mm-hmm. so that's you know it'll be a tough first 100 but I'm hoping to get in there, and if, if that one doesn't work out, then um, there's a company called Rock Creek down, no relation to Rock Creek Runner, <laughs> um, down in Tennessee that's putting on their uh, 100 uh, down there. This will be their first, the inaugural um, Rock Creek 100 uh, that is the same weekend. I'm really, that would be a cool one if if Massanutten works out. So yeah, so the training is six months long and started last week.
1: And it's Brian Powell's Relentless Forward Progress plan. Yeah,
0: 50, yep. fifty
1: mile a week, piece, peak or seventy. Fifty he mile gives, a week. He gives both options in that book. Yep, 50. I'm
0: doing the fifty. I think I'll probably um, go a little longer on some of the weeks, but mm-hmm. I'm really, you know, just sticking to the fifty uh, plan. And, and it just jumps right in. You know, like you said, the first weekend um, you have a 12 mile long run, which you know, I mean, isn't yeah. super long, but it's not like a typical marathon training yeah. plan <laughs> right. where, right. you know. Where you yep. build up from the tiny base, yeah, uh. and
1: right, and you do so many twenties and and so many twenties followed by twelve or fifteen, and then yeah, which is which is cool. Like you definitely, I remember feeling on that plan uh, having to go do an eighteen mile run one Saturday, and it was like, "Well, ah, today's an easy day, it's just eighteen miles today." <laughs> where we're in marathon training, that's near the near the longest you the do. Peak, yeah, I mean, uh-huh. you do a twenty, maybe a twenty-two. But I remember when I got to that point when I felt like that for the first time, I was like, wow, this is in some way working. Whether or not it is changing my fitness level, it's it's making me um, just not, in my mind, build up 18 miles to be very much. It's like a quick thing that right. you go get done uh, and then go do the rest of your day. So, yeah, that and just kind of doing that over and over changed a lot about how I thought. I mean, it's not that that different from marathon training, and I think people have trouble believing that. And maybe I'm sort of now having having been a few years removed from marathon training in favor of ultra training, um, maybe I'm somewhat I guess biased or I I don't know, I don't know if Jade is the right word, but used to that. But you know, it just didn't feel all that different. Like there were a lot of seven mile runs like three seven mile runs almost every week and then your long runs. Right and it's and they're yes, they're longer. You start out with twelve instead of starting out with four or six or whatever it is in a marathon plan. But like it just didn't feel that different. Like there aren't. It's not like during the week you're putting in ten and fifteen mile runs very often, if at all. I mean, we said fifty right. miles a week peak. That's that's not all that much more than some marathon training programs. Like if you're training to run your fastest marathon, you could easily get above fifty miles. And I, I think when I trained, when I ran my my Boston qualifying race, I was I ran probably more miles than I did training for the for the hundred. So interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not that. That different, and I I think it's not that it's not hard to do it. It takes it takes a lot of, you know, I think time running just helps, and and especially mental toughness. You just get used to suffering, and it just stops hurting as much because you've been there and you know you can get through it. So I'm not saying it's easy to go out and run 100 miles by any means, or easy easy to go train for it even, but it's just not that night and day difference from from training for a marathon like a lot of people I think assume right. it is, and that I assumed it was before I tried it. Yeah. What uh? What fifty mile do you have planned? Because I know there's a fifty miler in that plan.
0: Yeah, I haven't picked out the fifty miler yet. Um, I'm hoping to actually get a hundred k in there if I if mm-hmm. I have the chance. Um, and there's a couple in the area that in the spring in the early spring that I think will, um, work out well, time out well. Uh, okay. But I haven't haven't settled all that down. Good. But yeah, I mean it's gonna be an adjustment for sure. I haven't really done a training plan in a a few years yeah
1: Um, Uh, that's how i remember feeling that way when i started yeah
0: because you know because i have you know a a base that i keep up with every week and it's certainly not as as big as you know what they're calling for in this training plan but it's been a long time since i followed something that every day i had laid out what i was supposed to be running um and and i'm excited about that i'm excited for the structure and um you know and challenging my way myself that way and really you know you know if I was running a marathon next month, you know, I probably would make sure I got in some good long runs, but my weekly mileage wouldn't train, change that much. Right. So, so it's fun. It's going to be cool. fun.
1: Well, good. I'm excited, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that 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 the talk had anything to do with that at all. And, it did,
0: absolutely. Cool.
1: That's that's very good. I'm glad to hear that, and I hope I hope that I start to hear stories from other people who actually do go ahead and and follow through with whatever their big goal is that I mentioned in the talk. I mean, tons of people came up and said that was my favorite part. Like, I really liked that. I'm I'm hoping that that they don't just fizzle out and and uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I think here's something four months from now.
0: I think it was a bit unexpected because you know most people probably knew that you were going to talk about what it's like to be a runner or to right. be a runner on a plant based diet, but they weren't really expecting that whole uh side of the talk. And I, you know, I think that that's probably what why it struck.
2: Yeah, why uh, maybe
0: it, it was important for people. Sure.
1: Yeah. yeah, and I, I, I don't know that to me that having a really compelling goal is so important because as I've thought about habit change a lot recently and, and really the entire not not this year, but the year before that is when I was first getting into Zen Habits and of course there's our uh, obligatory Zen Habits mentioned for the podcast. <laughs> actually our second of the yeah, podcast. Yeah, our
0: second, but, that's right.
1: Um, I was I was really getting into that and and fi- it was the first I'd ever been exposed to the science of habit change and like what can we actually do to kind of hack the process of habit change and and make things more likely to stick and i read the power of habit and Mm -hmm. i spent that whole year thinking about that stuff and and applying it with some success for sure but what i also came to realize as a result of failing at some habits and succeeding in others was that like really really wanting something wanting to change for for whatever that reason may be if that excites you and drives you and and you know you Like you simply must change in your mind or whatever, whether the change is just go run a marathon or go accomplish something. I'm I'm just saying change to, to include all that stuff. Or if it's lose weight or actually change something about yourself, like stop a bad habit or whatever. But if, if you don't truly really want to do that, then all that, all the tricks and, and hacks really don't matter. Like, yes, they will they will temporarily change your results because they will there'll be a new thing and a distraction and something new to focus on. And they'll work for a while because they are you know, they, they are how we change. But if if underlying it all is not a, a burning desire to do it and make it work, then eventually it kind of just goes out the window. And and even though this stuff is designed to create habits and make things become automatic. It, it's very hard to get through the period when the, the actual creation period of the habit, before it is is attached and, and like before it's cemented in your brain, right. um, if you don't have this this obsession basically with with making whatever this change is. And at the same time, um, if you really really do want something, but don't apply all that stuff, I think you're still going to be successful if you really really want something and like there's no alternative for you other than to make it happen somehow. Then I think all that like so all that stuff kind of affects the middle ground if you're if you're not completely against change and you're not completely for it then then yes, maybe that little stuff will make a difference. but if you're on either end of that, like you really really want something or you really, really don't want to change then then all that stuff is is I don't think going to last for very long,
0: right, because you know if that that burning desire is part of the reward of getting out and doing it every day, you
1: know, yeah, and that's right because the habit itself, and Leo says this a lot is that you can give yourself the reward. Like your brain has this habit loop and at the end of that loop is some sort of reward. So you can kind of hack it by after a run, if your goal is to get out there and start running, you can reward yourself with a small piece of chocolate and actually give your taste buds a reward that you are associating with having done this task. But what Leo has always said is that the external or extrinsic rewards, it it works okay, but the habit's really not going to stick long-term unless it becomes an intrinsic reward. If, if the habit itself is the reward and becomes a behavior that you actually enjoy and feel rewarded by doing it, then it's not going to work. So right. yeah, exactly what you said. Cool. <clears throat> All right. Well, um, I would say we have dissected that enough. Yeah,
0: now. I think so. Well.
1: And, um, I don't know if there's anything else to, to really wrap up here. I guess when this publishes, it'll be early December. So We'll be going into the holidays. Uh, we do have a few more. I have another podcast recorded, recorded it actually earlier than this, earlier today. So we should have another one in December. And then we've got, um, some really good guests lined up. Uh, Nicole from Lifeless BS, let's just call it. Um, it has a (laughs) curse word in there, but we won't put that on anime radio. Um, (laughs) she's gonna, she's gonna be on here sometime around New Year's because she has a very inspiring goal herself. For a pretty long-term goal for the for the year 2015, so um, she, she'll be fun, and I'm looking forward to talking to her. She was another person who I connected with on the book tour, which I guess brings this full circle. We cool. uh, got to have dinner in L. A. at a great vegan restaurant or vegetarian restaurant, one of those two, and uh, she was one of many many people who I got to do something like that with that that really made the whole thing work it, worth it. Just just going out there and meeting all these people who I'd connected with online, but but never really. Um, met in person until now so i highly recommend it
0: (laughs) well well, matt congratulations on almost completing the book tour and thank you i hope the last couple events go well
1: yeah in my mind it's complete i feel like i've already done it i mean it's just i've been home now for for a week and i'll be home for another week before i go out again so it feels done i feel like those are just sort of their own uh their own separate events that that will be just like the book tour but (laughs) i feel like in my mind it, it is accomplished so Okay. Um, so yeah, so I appreciate it. Thank you and I hope everyone enjoyed the talk. Feel free to leave a comment if you haven't. As always, we haven't pushed us too hard recently, I don't think, but please go on iTunes and review the podcast and give us a nice rating on there. Uh, we will put a link to that as we always do at the end of the show, but that's really important. Oh, and by the way, I didn't mention this. One of the messages that – you know, one of the things I learned basically from doing the book signings and having people stand in line and come up and tell me things – was how much they liked the podcast so that was awesome because i think as we've said on here before it's not the easiest medium in the world to get feedback on like a blog post people put tons and comments on and you, you know whether something's working or not And you know if people are reading your blog or not by the traffic stats and the links but with a podcast you don't really have that i mean amazon reviews or sorry amazon reviews look at me in book mode um <laughs> podcast reviews on itunes they yes they are feedback but that's you know, a relatively small number of people will ever actually go do that, uh, hoping you will be one of those people. But, um, you know, people don't really leave comments on podcasts, at least not on our podcast. Um, it just doesn't seem like a, a place where people would would leave a comment. So it's hard to know, really, like, if, you know, if something is, is really clicking with people, if a certain episode was great or if a certain episode wasn't great. You know, that, that sort of feedback just isn't as... Uh, as a parent and and you don't know. So being on the book tour and hearing people say how much they really do like the podcast. There was a lot of people who, who listen to the podcast but don't even read the blog. They just are podcast listeners. So I was encouraged to hear that. and It made me want to make more of these things. So we should have between between this one and sometime around January 1st, we'll have three total, including this one and including that one. So that will be three in the span of of five weeks, which is pretty good for us. So. Hopefully yeah. we'll be, we can keep up a pace like that. I don't know if we can promise one every two weeks or even one every one week, maybe one day. But uh, we are going to try to do them more frequently because it, it seems that people do like them and I'm glad to hear that. Because and they're
0: uh, a lot of fun. They're fun for us.
1: Yeah, they are fun. Maybe for you, not for me. I don't, I don't...
0: <laughs> you don't like talking to me that much?
1: <laughs> no. no, I'm just kidding. They are fun. They're good. And uh, yeah, it's just it's a challenge. It's, it's not as easy as writing for me, for sure. And it's just different because I haven't... You know, I've written 500 blog posts now, and I've only done 20 podcasts. So it's different, yeah. and it's challenging and refreshing and all that good stuff. So anyway, thank you to everyone who said that. I imagine those who love the podcast and told me that are probably listening to this. So thank you. I really appreciate that feedback. And uh, that is about all I have to say. So I hope everybody – I guess no. I'll, we'll, we will have another episode up before the holidays actually begin, the, the Christmas, Hanukkah type things. Actually, I shouldn't speak for Hanukkah because I don't know Yeah, why. Hanukkah starts on Thursday. Is that right? Okay. Yeah,
0: for over Thanksgiving, same day.
1: Wow. Okay. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> all right. Well, happy Hanukkah, everybody, except I guess you will have. Yeah, because this might go up yeah. during Hanukkah. All right. We're rambling officially, <laughs> so let's cut it off. Thanks, everyone. We will see well, you next time.
2: All right. Thanks, man. Bye.